Um, Shall we give Mike a warm welcome to come yeah, speak to us? Right, uh, a couple of book uh, recommendations first. One has got nothing to do with what I'm about to say, but I just like it. Uh, and that's The Good God. If you've seen that, read that, I think it's probably the most accessible book on uh, I say understanding the Trinity, because that's almost like a contradiction in terms, isn't it? But explaining the Trinity that I think I've read for many, you know, many, many years. It's very accessible. Uh, there's some great books written in the sort of Puritan era that I think do a great job. But this one, you know, it's got pictures. Uh, and, uh, and <laughs> none, none of which are pictures of the Trinity, thank the Lord. Because that would... <laughs> Because that would, that would have completely disqualified the book in the first place. But uh, it's really good. To, I think particularly, the reason I think this is such a good book is at the moment there's a lot of stuff going around that I think is uh, uh, unwittingly undermining the Trinity. And we've got to really nail this uh, again and again and again because there's a propensity to sort of misunderstanding or misrepresenting Trinity. So this is a great book, and we've got several of them, so um, that, that's a good one to recommend in your churches and amongst people. Uh, the other book, which isn't on the bookshelf, because I don't even know if it's in print anymore, but it's completely irrelevant to what I'm going to speak about in this first session, is The Quest for the Radical Middle. How many of you have got this? Okay, you must beg, borrow, steal... What, steal their copies when they're not looking... The Quest for the Radical Middle. It's by Bill Jackson. Oh, it's... Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the wrong one. It's, uh, it's on Kindle. Oh, it's on Kindle. So come on, you can get it on Kindle. It's the, st- the history of the vineyard movement. And uh, the reason this is so timely is, uh, and fits in with what I'm going to talk about now, is it charts the story of John Wimber and the vineyard and how it got started and kind of the decisions they made, some of the choices they had to face, some of the things they were kind of trying to, to, to wrestle with, which is hence the title, A Quest for the Radical Middle, trying to keep word and spirit in balance and sort of... Uh, so, yeah, without saying any more, it's a magnificent read, and I, I, if I could make it compulsory for everybody in this room, I absolutely would, because it's where we are in terms of some of the issues we're grappling with now as, as New Frontiers. It's absolutely breathtakingly brilliant and it's very easy to read I can't I couldn't put it down to be honest I haven't quite finished it yet but I, just the just the, it draws you into the story and you feel the kind of issues so it's, it's wonderful The Quest for the Radical Middle History of the Vineyard by Bill Jackson so that's that's good so uh, if you'd like to turn to Genesis chapter 49 I just wanted to do a session that I've called Jacob and Sons uh, Creating Movement Not Organisation and um, so I'll just read a few verses and then I, I just really want to uh, look at some principles that I think can help us uh, as we are going forward at the moment in this new phase of life as New Frontiers and our relational mission as we are, as part of that. So Genesis 49, just verse 1, and then I'll jump to some other verses. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And then (coughs) verse 28 of the same chapter. All these, uh, this is after he's kind of prophesied over the the son, his his sons, 
All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field in Mechpala to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought sorry, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then (laughs) Joseph... The duvet wasn't big enough. Uh, (laughs) Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And then if you turn to Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Just quickly got to change something on the settings here. I find with preaching with an iPad, if I forget to change the auto log, my my notes disappear. (laughs) Well, I've just got to get that right. Okay, there we go. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Father, I pray that you would help us as we look at this uh, passage of Scripture and look at the principles that we find in it. We can see, Lord, your uh, hand at work in the lives of of men and women through the generations. And Lord, we also know that your hand is upon us uh, and the people we represent. Lord, we are a part of your story. We're a part of your history. Lord, we have a part to play and we want to play it well. We want to not think too much of ourselves, but neither do we want to think too little of ourselves. We want to understand, Lord, and realize that you've ordained that we live now, that we live where we do, we're doing the things that you want us to do and you've got destiny mapped out for us. We've got a that over us for which you took hold of us and I pray that these scriptures will be of great encouragement to each one of us this morning. Lord, we've all got a part to play and we want to learn from all you're doing amongst us as a family of churches at the moment. Pray you just help me just to draw things out of this that will be genuinely of help to us, Lord, as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few uh, sort of introductory comments, really, to to sort of uh, then get into some principles and look at some of the verses. Um, As regards to to New Frontiers, we're we're still in, I think, a, a crucial phase of multiplication and transition. It's a season, it's not an event. Um, a birthday is an event, <laughs> you know, it comes and it goes in a, in a set period of time. A transition is not an event, it's a process. And it's not something you can say, well, it started na- then and it will finish then. It is something 
that you, it's a cultural change. It's a, it's a, a, a process that can only be observed and reflected upon. It's felt. It's very subjective as well as being objective. So there's lots of things going on. And I think we're still in that. It'll take some years, I think, to process and see how it worked fully. Not many people in church history have done what Terry set in motion in this transition. Not many have done that. To actually say, I don't want any successors. I just want to multiply apostolic sons who then walk into their own prophetic destiny um, to encourage them to do that, to walk in their own paths, having learnt from their father in God. And I know he is totally convinced that he's done the right thing. Completely, 100%. There's no doubt in his mind this is the right way to go. But it is um, a challenging way to go. And when uh, change happens like this, it's costly, it's painful, it's unsettling. It can uh, bring out the worst of people as well as the best of people. You think, well, even Jesus' disciples, when they caught a whiff that Jesus was about to go, they started arguing who was the greatest because they were thinking, hang on a minute, a vacuum who's going to fill it? So there's something of human nature that comes out uh, in times of transition. You know, insecurity brings out good in people, but it also brings out challenges in people. Uh, so there's things to navigate, but they have to be, any change has to be navigated. You just have to make sure you're making the right change so you navigate the things that just have to be navigated. Many denominations, when you sort of look at their history and uh, even the book I've referred to just about the vineyard, you, you um, as well as the historic denominations, Methodism, Salvation Army, Anglicanism, various Baptists, various other things, fantastic moves of God that often occurred um, many years ago. Um, but in some denominations, you can find that the sense of family and the sense of uh, fathers passing on to sons is now not the feeling. It can often end in structure and formula rather than in, in life. And there's a maintaining of a sense of security out of structure rather than out of um, life now. And I think it's important we, we think as we go forward, because we're not immune from, from making mistakes, we've got, to, we've got to get this right, I think it, it helps me anyway to think in terms of family rather than in terms of structure. Whenever you think of church, church is family. It's, it's, it's people living life. It's not structures with people fitting into them. It, it's living, it's organic, it's, it's the dynamics of relationships rather than organizational detail that people are then aligned to. The church by nature is a dynamic living thing, not a system or some sort of structure. I think this comes through even uh, more strongly in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, where Paul's, uh, I think, viewing his work in Corinth, and he says this. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, I think what Paul is saying there, uh, if I can sort of just take, give you my take on it, I think he's saying, you know, each generation has to learn the same principles for themselves. 
life has to be lived by each person, by each generation. You are our letter, not here is a letter. It's, it, you, Paul didn't say to Corinth, right, here's a letter, now we've structured you. He said, no, you are the letter. You, you are the result of ministry. He didn't say read this and do what it says. Life has to be lived. And if you, if you want kind of proof of that, then just talk to anyone in their 20s in your church and tell them about the battles you fought to get the church where it is now. And they will say, so what? Why? Because they're not their battles. They're, they're, because they have to fight their battles in their day. It's a living letter. You, you've got to do the whole thing over again. People have got to find God themselves in their day. You can't pass something on to them that they then uh, feel the good of because they've not had to fight it. It's it, uh, living letters. Churches are living letters. We are living works that God does his stuff in and when we're gone the people coming after us God has to do the same stuff again you can't make it uh, you can't just hand it over to someone and say okay well I don't need to bother with that anymore no it's it's stuff that we have to recognize will will happen again and again and again um, we might think to ourselves, Paul perhaps built so well uh, that what happened after him was very secure and didn't need any further adjustment well we know church history shows us that much of what was planted uh, fell into di difficulties. The same foundation has to be laid again and again and again and will do after us. Our job is to build well now and invest in sons and daughters so the family grows and flourishes in their own identity before God. Now, if you look at uh, just a few uh, principles, you'll see where I'm going as we, as we move through. If you look at Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4, I think there's just some some things that can um, can help us with that. It's difficult to find Ecclesiastes with a big Bible. Here we are, got it. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4 says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Then in verses 9 to 11, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And then chapter uh, 11, verses 1 to 2. Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain and empty themselves on the earth and a tree falls to the south or the north, in the place where the tree falls there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Now, what I think say, he's saying there in Ecclesiastes is there's a principle of entrusting and multiplying because what has been and what has been learned, the things that the journeys God has taken us through, or in his day, the, the things that God was taking him through, were going to be repeated in the next generation, and they can't just be a one-off. They're there's a generational perspective on all of life. Think of Peter when the transfiguration occurred. Peter tried to enshrine it, build some booths. Now, he wasn't... I can, I've got some sympathy with Peter. There's this incredible manifestation of the glory of God, and he thinks, now, if I just put some booths here and kind of house this, I can bring the others up, they can see this, they can encounter it, or I can perhaps carry the booths down, and we've got the glory there. 
but you can't enshrine a moment. It's, 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 it was for the moment for those people, and okay, it's recorded for us, but they were there, we weren't. It was for a moment and couldn't be preserved, and each of us needs our own new moments with God's glory, don't we? You can't just read about someone else's moment. Uh, Jacob, when we think about him and his sons, Jacob couldn't give his sons his Bethel encounter when heaven was over. He couldn't do that. J Jacob couldn't give them his wrestling with God encounter. He could tell them about it, but they had to wrestle for themselves. They had to experience God for themselves. They had to find God for themselves. Even the whole principle of, of Moses, that two generations later, uh, sorry, three generations later, where the people of God are going through the desert and manna is there daily, it's even the way God does that. God could, God could have given them long life manna, <laughs> UHT or whatever. He could, have, he could have given them long life manna, but every day they had to go. There's something about the way God wants us to relate to him where he won't let his glory be enshrined so we don't need daily dependence. There's something about the way God wants us to walk with him that is part of the Christian life and it can't be put into a box and then handed on. Moses fought battles, took land, but Joshua who came after him had to fight more battles and take more land. And in some ways it's a little bit depressing thinking about this. Moses had his golden calf that he had to fight for and say, what are you doing? You're worshipping the golden calf. Joshua then had the sin of Achan, which is almost the same thing, but just with a different set of circumstances. And he also then had to lead the people out of that. The point I'm making is every generation has to find God for themselves. They have to go through the same uh, processes. And after the first generation, we try to encapsulate things that they discovered in God and put it into a brochure or a statement of faith or some sort of constitution all that will impart is history. It won't impart life. As Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians, we're not, we cannot give letters written by ink. We can't say to someone, right, we're going to plant a church here, here's our brochure of how to do it, or here's our manual of how to do it. You need a living letter, a person who's encountered God, been anointed by God, and has been commissioned to do it. So it's, it's a living thing. It's not something we can... Uh, enshrine. Now, that's kind of um, just a, a background to what we're now going to go on to, because when we just look at some principles now from Genesis and Jacob and Sons, I think there's some things for us to learn at this moment of transition for us, because um, we've got to now let the Lord uh, help us come into the prophetic destiny that he's got for us whilst celebrating those we've learnt from we can't rely on someone else's anointing to carry us forward into what we're going into we've got to find God ourselves yeah we, we, we are the cavalry there, there, is, there is no other cavalry and that's really frightening really <laughs> But that is how it is. Now, it shouldn't be frightening because it makes you dependent, but it's, it's recognizing that that's how God works. One generation commends the works to another, and they rise up. So, let's have a look at some principles then, I think, from Jacob and his sons. First thing is this. In transition, 
Notice with, uh, uh, in uh, Genesis 49, verse 1, it says this. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So the first, th first thing is, in transition, the focus is on them, not on him. The focus is on the future, not on the past. He's gathering them together so that he can tell them, show them, what will happen to them in the days to come. There's a forward-looking momentum. There's a future uh, emphasis in the moment of transition. Now, Jacob loved his sons. He desired their fruitfulness to be beyond his own. He wanted them to take more land than he'd been able to do on his own. He longed to see his sons. Um, he longed to be with them because he hadn't seen them for a while. And he, he could rest peacefully once he knew they were poised for the future. For him, that was completion of job done. He didn't need to know what they were going to do, where they were going to go, how they were going to do it. All he needed to know was, I've, I've imparted and helped define their prophetic destiny I trust God that he will take them into the things they've got to do. That was Jacob's longing, and it started in his heart before it got into the agenda. Now, the desire for spiritual sons, not for, rather than for some sort of empire or some sort of organization, uh, I think is something every one of us in this room has got to have pumping in our hearts. We've got to desire spiritual sons and daughters that we might be able to do a Jacob to so that we can impart to them our longing. Our, 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 we, can, we can leave this earth peacefully, pull your feet up under the duvet and pass on when you've been able to give some prophetic destiny to sons and daughters around you who've been trained in your ways. You don't need to set their agenda. You just need to know they've got God with them. They've been prepared well. They're the living letters in their day. That, that's, to me, a fulfilled life, a fruitful life. I uh, learnt this uh, early on in my Christian life when um, one of the things I, I first got involved in ministry was in a worship band. I know it's difficult to believe now because I don't seem to do that now, but I played a guitar, I was in a worship band. I remember the first time, <laughs> the Marina Theatre, Ian remembers this, we, we, we renovated, or, uh, uh, we were involved in Youth for Christ and we renovated the Marina Theatre in Lowestoft and we were the first band to tread the boards since Vera Lynn in 1941. <laughs> What about that? What a, what a follow-up act. Um, we, were the <laughs> we, we renovated this old theatre, down-to-earth mission it was, and you know, all the rest of it. Anyway, um, that launched a brief career uh, in worship leading. But I, le I learnt something very important about uh, this principle of training sons, um, because after I'd been leading worship for a while, there was quite a few young people in the church, and I thought, I think I'll just have a guitar group so I remember the first night they all came to my house, there was about 30 of them, all with their guitars, all in my front room. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just teach you first how to tune your guitar. Well, that was one evening, you know, 30 people trying to tune a guitar in the front room. I mean, really, it takes a lot longer than you think. It really does. So I thought, this is obviously going to be a longer course than I realised. Anyway, then the next week was, this is a G, you know, and everybody else had to, you know, and by then the guitars had gone out of tune as well, so some of them had to retune. So going through the whole thing, week after week after week. I, <laughs> but I learned this. You see, I, I taught them the basics, and I did a little booklet of the chords and how to tune it and the, how to read music and all the rest of it. We did, we did some, some practical stuff. Gave them some... They all had the same kind of tools to work with. But what I discovered uh, was this. I, I just taught basic chords 
and some of the, the simple techniques of, of playing guitar, but I let them learn how to express it and develop it for themselves. And what came out of that group, actually, even now in our church, which isn't a, you know, very sort of uh, kind of, we're not in the middle of some sort of cultural hub in Lowestoft, we're out on the edge, you know. Uh, uh, but we've got such a pool of um, creative musicianship amongst us because I set a culture 25 years ago or 30 years ago now, and people ever since then, young young. Uh, children have come through into that culture and want to uh, they don't just want to play guitar they want to play music uh, we've got a young guy who was just in the, one of the ten finalists in Young Drummer of the Year nationally just two or three weeks ago he's only 16 um, we've got people who are professional musicians who play you know really kind of you know top people and very very high caliber people I don't even play anymore because I'm embarrassed because they are so, so, so much better than me because I put into their hands some tools and God did the rest. Now, I learned a very important lesson in that early stage that whatever God gives you, give it away. Just give it away. Put it into the hands of other people because they, they will find their flair, their creativity. They don't, I didn't need to teach them how to sing songs because some of them liked one sort of song, so, so, some of them liked other kind of music. I didn't even tell them what was good music. I kind of thought that would be intuitive, but clearly I was wrong. Uh, but I didn't try to define what they should do. I just gave them the principles. Now, I, I think that's a philosophy of ministry. And it runs right through everything uh, I think you see in Jacob and his sons. And I think when you look through Scripture... <laughs> Every generation, it's the same thing again. God just gives principles to people and then he outworks their prophetic destiny. So it needs to be uh, the same for us. We are, in one sense, uh, in this room, we are the result of Terry teaching some principles and then releasing to find creative expression. That's kind of what he's done. He's saying, oh, I've put some principles into you. I've taught you the basics, taught you how to tune the guitar, this is the G chord, off you go, express it. And that will happen more and more. There'll be more and more music played out of this room because we've been taught by, by a maestro who's shown us how to do the basics. That's kind of how it works. So, so that's the first thing. The focus is on them, uh, on the future, uh, not, not the past. The second thing is they're... Notice when you notice Jacob's sons, they're all different, and yet they're still from the same family. So if you look at um, verse, uh, chapter 49 again, verse 3, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, strengths, the first fruit of my strength. Um, verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. I wouldn't want to be in their cell group. Uh, <laughs> verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Oh, a bit more relating to that one. He shall become a haven for ships. Uh, verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. I don't think that's very nice, really. <laughs> but, you know, Issachar, you strong donkey. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful forms. 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. Now, the point is, all of his sons are different, 
They all have to be true to themselves and minister out of who they are, not out of who he was. Or out of who their brothers are. Now, John the Baptist, I um, really love the verse where when Jesus is drawing all the disciples to him and people come to John and they say, uh, all your disciples are going after Jesus. And John makes this amazing reply. He says, a man can only receive what he's given from heaven. So John is secure in his own identity. He didn't try to think, oh, goodness, right, I'd better sort that out. Quick, get the, get the media man. Let's, let's, uh, let's do a bigger and better campaign. No, he knew who he was. He was secure in who he was. And it didn't threaten him because he knew that his very purpose was to introduce people to Jesus anyway. So the point of this is um, we can only be who we are. I can only be who I am. And it's no point me trying to be someone else or try to, to, to work, live out of someone else's prophetic destiny. Some of Jacob's sons had a, diff, had a geographical prophetic foundation. You know, um, one of them lived by the sea and one of them, you know. Others had more kind of a style of ministry sort of written over them. Now, the point for us is this. As, as relational mission, I believe we do have a prophetic destiny ahead of us. Yeah? We've got a prophetic destiny ahead of us. It's not an organizational one. It, it will become our distinctive. It's not someone else's. It's been assigned from heaven. And that, that calling is going to be worked out with dear brothers who, and sisters who the Lord's joined at heart connection over time. And it takes time because it's relational. It's not like uh, Terry lined everybody up in the playground and everybody just picked teams and uh, everyone in relational mission was kind of at a certain point of the picking procedure. No, there's a, there's a sense, I hope you feel, that we are in the process of being formed together. Yeah. Right? It's, it, there's something taking place. A family's being formed. It's not an organization. It's taking time. And some of you feel closer to it or more connected to it than others because you've been involved for longer or shorter periods or there's different things have happened in your ministry, different right turns are taking place and there's all sorts of stuff going on providentially. That's, that's exactly as it should be. That's exactly what a family and a relational movement is to be like. It's a process that takes time and we have to let the destiny begin to take shape as the Lord blesses it. We notice even of Jacob's sons, some were more fruitful than others. Some had a larger assigned sphere than others. It's a sign from heaven. It's not a race and it's not a contest. I'm not trying to compare myself with other apostles in the UK or other apostles in the movement. I love those brothers with all my heart. They've got their own prophetic destiny. I've got my own. We've got our own. And we have to therefore find what is it that heaven has assigned to us in the same way as, jo as Jacob helped his sons, he helped them define what God had called them to do. And uh, now, uh, all of you perhaps who are leading in a place in your churches where you are, perhaps if you're leading where someone else was, and you're now having to express your leadership, you'll have to find your own um, DNA. Things will begin to take shape that will be slightly different perhaps from how it was. And they honoured their father. They didn't teach things that their father wouldn't have taught. They didn't do things that their father wouldn't have done. There was an honouring of the, of the values. But the way in which it's expressed 
uh, in their culture, in their day, will, will be different. It's, it's got to find its own, um, its own uh, level. Uh, and I've had to go through that myself and am going through that myself, not to live with the expectations of other people put on to me. I've got to be myself, can't walk in Saul's armour, uh, trying to say, well, Lord, what is it that you've given us as, as chemistry? What's our distinctives? What's our own destiny as relational mission? What's our journey? What are the ingredients you've given us that you want us to do uh, things with. And one of the images that helped me thinking about the transition was this. If we think of New Frontiers as being like a cake and it's all been chopped up and everyone's had a slice of the cake and we've got the relational mission slice and we think, oh, right, there's a, a New Frontiers slice of cake and we think, right, we've got to steward that cake because we've been given a piece of cake by Terry and this is a precious piece of cake. Look how much effort went into it. I think that's the wrong picture because cake goes off. <laughs> It's got a sell-by date. You can't steward someone else's cake. What Terry has done is given us a bag of ingredients. And he's saying, now bake your cake. It'll still smell the same. It'll taste the same. It's got the same ingredients, the same proven recipe over the years. But don't just walk around with someone else's slice of cake. Bake something. For goodness sake, bake something. Be creative. Allow your creative expression to, to flow. Now that to me is much more exciting than just watching over somebody's piece of cake, if you get my meaning. Now Jacob released his sons. He released them to their prophetic destinies. Each was very different. They had to outwork it uh, in, in their own particular way. They had to, to find what it was that God wanted them to be and then uh, pursue it. Um, let me just yeah, I'll come back for that one. Um, yeah, next point. Is in transition, uh, the security comes from the relationships, not in the family name. And in, uh, in Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Now, there's real emotion. There's raw emotion there. So only sons feel a heart connection to fathers. Right? Sons feel a heart connection to fathers. Joseph wept over his father. If I can say this, uh, and I may be misunderstood, but I'll go for it anyway because it will wake you up before lunchtime. Uh, the name New Frontiers does not define the family any more than the name Betts defines mine. The relationships define the family. Right? If my... It, loyalty and love make the family work, not the family name, unless you're in EastEnders and you're told you're a Mitchell, you know, which it, it, there's an identity given according to a name, not according to a set of relationships. Now, that never works because relationships, um, if, the, if the relationships are missing from the, from the, the title that's been given, it's, it, a family isn't a family. Names largely should only give outward identity for clarity, for communication, and for pra practical functioning of the family, never for internal identity or loyalty. If having the name makes you feel part of the family, you were probably never part of it in the first place. Think about it. Right. I am l not loyal to New Frontiers. I'm loyal to Terry. It's a different thing. 
I'm loyal to the brothers who are part of New Frontiers. My relationships are with them, not with the name. We use the name because it gives identity and clarity and communication and a sense of who we are in the bigger scheme of things. That's not what we worship or what we honour. We honour the relationships. Now, that's really, really important because Jacob didn't say to his sons, now, come on, guys, you've got to get some corporate identity together here so that we hold the whole thing together, make it kind of, you know, we've got to have a slick presentation for all those Hittites. You really understand? No, he, he, he was happy to let the relationships define how it was then presented over time. The, the, the relationships produce something that then you organize around. There's got to be organics that produce organization rather than organization that try to produce organics. It's got to be that way around. It's a, it's a journey of lifelong relationships rather than uh, having names. Now, those of you who are panicking over what I've just said, I believe the name New Frontiers is helpful to keep. I do, because I think it's an umbrella name that describes all the different families, and in a moment of transition, this is good to have, because everyone knows kind of in the broader sense of the word where they fit. But that's not where the loyalty is. No. Otherwise, you've created a denomination. Yeah. The loyalty is to Terry. He is my father in God. I don't care what you call him. <laughs> He'll still be my father in God. That's, that's what the relationship is. That is New Frontiers. I don't need a name to give me security in the relationships. And actually, that's not a strong foundation to a family. Terry would be a father in God to me whether, whether we had the same names or whether we didn't. Now, I think that actually, if we, if we focus on that, that, that the quality of the relationships, it gives the security within the family to allow uh, a growing up without feeling we're growing apart. Because you, you have to grow up but you can only grow up if you're secure enough not to feel you're growing apart. My observation would be those who are struggling most with transition, when I look across the country and other countries, those who are struggling most are grappling with these issues of relationship as yeah. opposed to identity. Yeah. And, and those are the things that are causing the insecurity. Yeah. It's a heart thing first. And if we get that settled, everything else is just... Whatever, isn't it? It's just secondary stuff. Now, you can come back to me on some of this in, if you want to in a minute. I'm just throwing some stuff out for you to think about. Next thing, in transition, the third generation is being prepared at the same time as the second. Now, this is, this is a bit scary, uh, but in Genesis 48, you'll notice in verses 8 to 11... When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? So Jacob, uh, Jacob hasn't um, even sort of got much of a relationship with the next generation, which is interesting. He said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Now, this is joy of joy for Jacob. He's thinking, man alive, not only have I got sons, I've got grandsons here. I can impart to any living, breathing thing something of what God has given me so that they in their day can run forward. Now, I, 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 
can give you a visual illustration of this just from Terry. I remember seeing him going into the New Day tent a few years ago and sitting on the floor amongst all these 14-year-olds and just lapping it up because he thought, you know, he's, he doesn't even know who they are in terms of there's no relationship with them, but he can see the second generation or the third generation of the second generation. He just wants to be there to bless it. Now, I think that's the heart of a father. A father blesses their sons and daughters, and they bless their grandchildren as well. There's something about the multi-generational um, heart of God that I think we've got to get into us as well. We can't wait too long before we start to notice the ones who will inherit from those we're investing in now, if you follow that one through. So what that means is go and prophesy in your creche. Because <laughs> the people who are running around, the toddlers that are running around now, give them 10 years, they're your future leaders to start putting in stuff into. So we've got to, we've got to think like that. Now that's because churches are family, they're not utility. If we view churches as utility and we think of them as organization, we'll think, who is the best person for me to invest in now in order to get the greatest product out of what I'm about to do? That is wrong. Because church is not utility. It's family. It doesn't have to have an end product. If it had to have an end product, we wouldn't care for the poor. Waste of time. Complete waste of time and resources. Hindrance. Stick to the wealthy and the powerful. But church isn't a utility. It's a family. You, you with me? Yeah. It's, it's so, so that means we might pour ourselves into someone who for 10 years will give us no return whatsoever in terms of a productive uh, job that you can give them. But you will have put foundations into them. Maybe that even after you've gone, they will start to kick in and you'll see things that you wouldn't, that wouldn't have seen had you not done that. So it's not thinking in terms of utility, it's thinking family. Jacob was not thinking utility. He was not thinking, right, okay, you lot, you're not bad. Um, what's the best thing I can prophesy over you to, to, to get you the most land? He's not even thinking about what they're going to have. He's just saying, I want to bless these guys and help them develop into the future. I Personally, I, I had didn't have much of a family growing up. My father died when I was very young. We had a very spread out family. That, that, that it's, it, I haven't got much of a sense of that, although in later years it's interesting that the Lord seems to be gathering them all back together now, which is quite interesting. Um, but because of that, what I found was this. When I became a Christian, the church became my family. It absolutely became my family. The church is not something I go to. It is my family. Because in the absence of, any, of anything else, you actually tend to learn those lessons a lot quicker because you realize, no, that's, these are my brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandfathers. and you know, that, that is what church should feel like. So we've got to be thinking third generation as well as second generation for us. Okay, next thing. Are you still with me a bit longer? Yeah. yeah. Um, next thing is in transition, each generation has its own battles. If you look at Exodus 1 verses 1 to 8, I think this is extraordinary verses. I won't read them all, but the point is they all, they, um, they, they, uh, they've got these amazing prophecies. Then they all, <laughs> verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers. Well, they all, all went. Now, Joseph, at this point, you've got to think, is second only to Pharaoh. National renown has shaped the culture of Egypt, has, has been a national figure 
with putting the ways of God at the heart of the way Israel, uh, Egypt did life. And then this extraordinary verse in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. I mean, man alive. If you were sort of going to, if you were going to build your security out of what you've achieved in your life, how discouraging is that verse? Jo Joseph could not possibly have had more fruitfulness in his life. Yeah. Could he? It's not possible. And then when he's dead, a new king arises. Oh, I don't know, Joseph. What did he do? Well, he only saved the nation you're now leading. I kind of feel about that, about the UK at the moment. When I listen to politicians, a new king has arisen who don't, who don't, don't know Joseph. They've got no idea who Jesus is. got no idea that the, the likes of Spurgeon or Wilberforce or Shaftesbury or Booth or all the people that shaped even our justice system, our, our sense of... Um, the political sort of safeguards of people, the, the, all the stuff that our nation's built on, they're all around leading it. And I say, oh, I, I don't know them. Who are they? Who's Spurgeon? Who's, who, who was Wilberforce? Man alive. Now, to me, that's, that says to me, not that God's lost it, that says to me God has a different way of doing it from how we might think. God will always, in every generation, raise up his new champions who will do what they need to do in their day. Now you might think to yourself, well yes, but it's devastating, all that Joseph had built, all those storehouses, all those, that organisation, all that influence, that, that Christian influence is all gone. Read what happens just a few chapters later. There's a little baby in a basket put in a river, saved from destruction, and Moses is providentially looked after by the hand of God when he should have died. Why? Because God has got his hand on that young man and that young man is going to lead the people out of slavery into an even greater destiny than Joseph's generation. That's the way God works. So that, that makes me relax in God's providence and God's, God is sovereign. He is sovereign over this nation, over every nation represented here. He will have his way. He will have his way. It doesn't matter what it looks like at the moment, whatever kind of mess this nation or Europe or where we're mostly gathered from, whatever kind of a mess we are in, and brothers and sisters, we are in an awful mess at the moment, that is of no consequence whatsoever to the providential purposes of God, which will outwork in every generation. It's of no, all it serves to do is magnify his glory when he changes it. That's all it does. It just serves to show that the Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Yeah. Now that, to me, stops me from trying to build organisation, trying to enshrine something so that it's safe. When I'm dead, no one will forget, no one will know who I am. People will have forgotten me. And you, sorry to tell you that, that your, Facebook, your Facebook account will be deleted. No more tweets, gone. People won't remember what you did or who you were and they won't care the greatest thing you can do then is invest in next generation who in their day will do great exploits like Moses did after Joseph and Joseph did after Jacob and Jacob did after Abraham and that's how it works folks that's how it works each generation's got its own battles each generation's got to find its own things. I, I look at my, 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 uh, uh, the children of myself and my contemporaries and I think, man, what, what battles are you going to face? And I kind of think, you don't know what we fought for. 
And yet you're, you're, you know, but you've got, you have got your own battles. You've got battles I don't understand. You've got destinies ahead of you that I can't fight because you're seeing the world differently from how I saw it. The things that you're thinking about are not the things I thought about. And all I want to do is invest in the principles, give them the ingredients, let them bake their own cake. Because they're going to have to. If you read uh, anything ever of Calvin or Luther, every other line's about the papists, isn't it? He's got the papists, this and papists. Even when he's, he's comment any book of the Bible he's doing a commentary on, the Pope's in there. I think, no, really, he isn't. You know, you know, <laughs> really, Paul did not have the Pope in mind when he wrote Philippians. He really didn't. But is it everything you read. Now, why is that? It's because those were the battles he was fighting in his day, and he was uh, kind of over-applying himself into that. Bat but now it makes no sense to us. But in his day, it did. So there's things we've got to fight in our day that matter to us now. We might want to think what some of those are. And then the next one, and we're getting to, this is the last point, is that in transition, each new family developed its own ways and its own identity. Uh, in, in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 49, verse 28, um, it says, if I can find it, oh yeah. uh, all these are the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, this is the, this is the bit, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. I was uh, helped recently in uh, January. You know, in January, I, I, I each year, I, I've been given the great opportunity just to, to pray, to study, to go and visit people I've not perhaps met before, people who I think could help me. Um, and so this January, I, I, I did what I usually do. And um, I had been feeling... Uh, I suppose a little bit of pressure internally in all this transition, if I'm be honest, feeling um, if people have got expectations of me that are not who I am, I'm going to disappoint people. Uh, now, any of you in church leadership will know that uh, um, leadership is a progression as your church grows, a progression of finding more and more people who you will disappoint in more and more ways. That is the, that is the, that is the, that is the definition of church growth. You more and more people that you can disappoint in more creative ways. Um, but joking aside, there is a point where if you if you live like that, something you're not able to be yourself because you feel I've got to say the right thing, I've got to do the right thing, I've got to be a certain way in order for people's expectations to be met. And I thought I cannot go through the next however many years living like that. It's not that anyone was doing that on purpose. It was an internal struggle. It's in me. It's not in anyone else. I was internally struggling, thinking, Lord, I, I am who I am. How do I do what, I've, what I believe you called me to do, being who I am? Because often I look at the thing and I say, it just doesn't work. So anyway, I, um, uh, and, and then just when you're going through that stuff, I'm, some of you perhaps relate to this in church leadership, you, you then always notice the super gifted, super impressive people over your shoulder whose church has grown from like you know, 20 to 2,000 before breakfast and, you thought, oh, well, I, and they always know exactly what to do, they have more ideas and more prophetic visions before breakfast than you draw breath. You say, I, I don't relate, I don't know how to do this. 
And um, I went up to Sheffield to spend some time with Paul McConaughey, who leads the 3DM church up there. And um, that's the um, Mike Breen um, set up there, although Paul now leads it. And he really helped me, really did help me. Just, I was just reflecting back, just, I wanted just to get some sort of coaching on this thing, just to try and help me. And uh, he made a, an interesting observation. He said that um, mega churches or churches that really grow uh, are often led by people who are exceptionally gifted and look the part and really do have that many prophetic visions before breakfast. And every, it just they are very highly capable, highly gifted, entrepreneurial people who, who really, really cut the mustard. And people gather to that person to get from that person what they couldn't get themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's a grace gift upon that person. But he reflected to me, he said, historically, he said, most movements, and this was, uh, I'm careful with the word here, but I'm just, mega church movement in terms of multiplication. He said most movement-based um, things in God are led by less than impressive people. I thought, ah, right, now you're talking. Uh, I thought, well, I can do unimpressive, so keep talking. And he said the, the reason that is the case is that people relate to a leader of a, of a movement-type uh, ministry because they're ordinary and normal and they feel I can be like that person rather than I'm going to him to get something I can't be. And he said, actually, the thing you need to do, to me personally, he said, you've got to find out what is it essentially about you that makes you you? Why would anybody want to be part of anything you're part of? Ask yourself those questions. I thought, well, that's easy. Uh, vulnerable, dependent, don't know what I'm doing, uh, trusting God for the next bit, uh, ordinary, normal life, just kind of do stuff, you know, all kinds of struggle. I can do struggle, I can do obedient, I can't do radical, but I can do obedient, I can do that sort of stuff. And he said, that's going to be the thing that will produce movement amongst you. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's really helped me. That doesn't then mean I want to be you know, consciously incompetent. So I think, right, okay, I'll, I'll just make a complete mess of it so that, you know, that attracts more people who also want to complete, make a complete mess of it. But it's, uh, it was really confirmed to me. I was in, it was in uh, the Netherlands just um, last weekend doing the presence of God. So I haven't told either of you this, but at the end of it, I had two of your people come to see me and uh, it was really, it was really quite sweet, actually. They, they sat on the, just sat on the step with me and they said, we like you, you're normal. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you, I think. Uh, and this lady said to me, don't ever stop being normal. She said, if, if you get up on a platform and get too big, we will pull you down. She said... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That. She said, we will, we will pull you down because you're normal and we can relate to you. And I said, well, pass me my blue M&Ms and my mineral water and thank you very much. No, didn't say that. Uh, I, 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 I thanked them and it just it was almost like the Lord saying, oh, there you go, see, you, you've connected even cross-culturally because you're just being yourself. Now, I'm just being quite vulnerable. Hopefully, just you kind of catch my heart in this. But it released me completely from thinking, you know what? I can just be me. And if this works, it'll be because I'm being me. Yeah. And if this works, it'll be because you are just being you. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean we then don't then grow in God, but it does mean we don't try to live in someone else's prophetic destiny. Yeah. We, Issachar didn't try to be Dan. 
Joseph didn't try to be Naphtali. If, if they had, they would have lost all fruitfulness and they would have never become in God, in God the very thing he wanted them to be. So the best thing we can be as brothers and sisters together moving forward, as, as uh, you are key ministries in this room. You are here for a purpose. Right? You are here for a purpose because I've invited you here because I believe in you and I believe there's callings on your lives that together we can accomplish because there's a prophetic destiny in God written over us. I, I, honestly, I believe that. I don't believe we are here by accident. There's something God is doing in this room. And the best thing we can be is to be exactly who God has defined us to be. So relax is my prophetic statement. <laughs> relax and be you. Yes, grow. Yes, go for it. Yes, learn new things. Do what I do on a January and get alongside people who are further ahead than you and spend time with them. Say, right, okay, iron sharpening iron, help me. I want to learn. Um, but I don't want to try and be something I'm not. I love the fact that Abraham, people often say to me, what's your strategy for relational mission? And you all know my answer now. I've got no idea. <laughs> I've got no idea what I'm doing. But I, I, I just love the fact I do have some promises. Yeah. That's all I need. All, I'm in good company. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he had some promises. I'd rather have Abraham's promises than some people's strategy. Per, to be honest, I'm not demeaning other people's strategy because if it's come out of promises, great. But if you've got strategy and no promises, you're in trouble. If you've got some promises but you don't know what you're doing, then lean dependently on the Father and he will make your ways straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. My hope is that God has said things he means. If he, has, if he didn't mean it, I'm in trouble and you're in trouble. Really, we are really in trouble if those promises are not true. But they are true. He's in the, if that isn't true, then I'm still in my sins because his promise to forgive me my sins is also not true. So, you know, God doesn't say things with one thing and, and, and then change, change with another. So, just as we come into land... Um, This, uh, a, key, a key thing for us, I think, is going to be about authority that comes from influence. Rather than commanding people what to do, I want to inspire people in what to do. I want to live a life that is so attractive that people come to me and say, can you help me? Because I've seen something about you and I want to learn from you. To me, that's the essence of leadership. If I have to stand to someone and say, look, do this because I'm telling you to, I am not a leader. I'm a dictator. I have nothing to say unless I'm already living it. So if I don't know how to, 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 to try and make my marriage work, if I don't know how to uh, you know, work all the, through the family dynamics, if I don't know how to just work relationally when things don't go well, if I don't know how to get the best out of my gifting, if I don't know how to connect with God when, I, when I'm trying to pray and it all seems very complicated, if I haven't pushed through those things, I've got nothing to say to anybody. So within this room, let's let our authority come out of influence through lives that are well lived so that people say, I want to be with you guys because there's something about you that inspires me. You're normal but yet you pursue God. That, to me, would be a wonderful thing. The other thing, just to say, 
in terms of relating to the other brothers, um, I mean, Jacob's sons didn't particularly do a brilliant job of hanging together. Um, I believe for better things in our case. Uh, next week we've got the international apostles all coming in from everywhere and a few days exactly like this. I tell you, I honestly believe, even with all the kind of ups and downs there have been, particularly in the UK, I honestly believe the depth of relationship now is stronger than it was before any of the transition started because people are finding one another at heart level. They're finding one another at heart level. They think, you know what, I want to be in the room with you because I love you, yeah. not because we've got the same title. That we are not together because of an organisational title. We are gathering next week because we want to be with one another. Now, I think that's stronger. Yeah. And I think what will happen is that collaborative mission across spheres will start to happen out of relationship organically as we have a bag of ingredients rather than out of a slice of cake saying, well, I'll bring my slice of cake and you bring your slice of cake and then we'll have a cake party. <laughs> it's not going to work. But you can organically just sit with brothers and sisters and say, Do you know what, I feel God's connection... Uh, what we're seeing now with Kenya, with Edward, I think that's going to happen more and more with, with Dave Holden, with Dave Devonish. With not, you know, I'm not just saying these are exclusive names, I'm just giving you examples. There's going to be more and more connections happen across the world and in, even in the UK because we're finding one another at heart level. Now that to me makes New Frontiers a stronger family than it ever was before because it's not organisationally held together. It's, it's held together by chemistry. And the last thing I want to say is this, is that, and I've said this to Terry, so I'm happy it being on film, and if he's watching this, Terry, I've already told you this, is that fathers need fathers. Fathers need fathers. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. We need Terry now as much as we ever did, but we need him for a different reason. We don't need Terry to give us strategy and direction. We need Terry to give us fathering and encouragement, just like Jacob did right up to the day he pulled up his feet into his duvet, right? <laughs> Jacob was still speaking blessing and shaping the prophetic destiny of his sons right up to the end. And I know that's Terry's heart. We've just got to find how it fits. We've got to find how he can do that. We've got to find new wineskins in order to get the blessing out of the father so that the sons can still, still be helped. I still travel down to see him two or three times a year just to pray together and we're trying to find contexts where more and more of us can do those kinds of things. And I know it's just a practical thing, but I wanted you to just know that's really part of the ingredients, that fathers don't retire. I can never understand why some churches, uh, a young guy takes over and the fathers almost seem to be sidelined. That's just crazy. Family dynamics, yes, you do work through all the bumps and scrapes of transition. Of course you do. That's what families do. Anyone here in a family has never had an argument? It's not a family, is it? You know, especially at Christmas, dear Lord. It's just, it's just how families work. But it doesn't mean you stick the father in the broom cupboard and say, well, not, you know, you're just too much trouble. No, it's just, no, you have to work it through. Life is full of relationships, isn't it? It's full of challenges and interaction, and church would be fine if it wasn't for all the people. But they have all, we have all the people. That's the point of it. And I think we have to work this through together. And if relational mission means anything, it means that we've got to excel at that really excel at that. So we honour every generation. We try to make it work. We, we stick through the bumps and the scrapes uh, and, and model something that in our broken world, in our so broken world where family 
and relationships just are so fragmented. Perhaps the greatest prophetic destiny, we could, the prophetic imprint we could leave as, a, as an apostolic family together, perhaps the greatest imprint would be some injection of relational DNA on the mission, to quote our name, that makes people think, do you know what, you can do mission in relationship. It doesn't have to just be organizational. You can do it in a family, uh, brotherly, sisterly way. You can do that. And I know this afternoon, Goth's going to pick up that um, uh, thread with the, with the next session. So, so can we stand together? We've, got, we've just got 10 minutes. I hope that's of some help to you. Um, uh, they're, they're, not, they're not fully formed thoughts, but you can kind of get the gist, I think, of where, what I'm trying to say. And, um, yeah, perhaps, Ollie, if you can just... Um, now, because this is a... You know, we're, we're brothers and sisters together. Of you know, we're, we're this senior people in the room here. I, I, I don't want to lead a response. I want the Holy Spirit just to lead a response amongst us. So you know, I don't know what the Lord might want to do in the next ten minutes or so. But let's just let's just give him a bit of space um, and just respond uh, however you feel that the, the Lord leading you. Is that okay?